Hello, my name's Florence. Welcome to the OBS pod. I'm an NHS obstetrician, hoping to share some thoughts and experiences about my working life. Perhaps you enjoy Call the Midwife, maybe birth fascinates you, or you're simply curious about what exactly an obstetrician is. You might be pregnant and preparing for birth. Perhaps you work in maternity and want to know what makes your obstetric colleagues tick, or you want some fresh ideas and inspiration. Whichever of these is the case, and for that matter, anyone else that's interested, the OBSPOD is for you. Episode 16. Hands on. When you're a medical student, you start to learn that medicine is broadly speaking divided into two. So there are the medical specialties. To stereotype, these tend to be the thinkers, slow ward rounds, a lot of deliberation, thinking about subtle signs and symptoms, examining, trying to elicit those signs, prescribing different medication and waiting to see their impact. Surgical specialties tend to feel a bit more brisk and abrupt practical hands-on cutting, making something better through immediate intervention and action. And that's not to say that that's strictly true. So some medical specialties now have far more intervention like endoscopy or cardiac catheterization, And surgical specialties often also require medical pharmacological treatment. But when I was a medical student, that was how things broadly divided. And I discovered that I was more interested in surgical specialties. So I found some of the very slow pace and deliberation of ward rounds rather frustrating, rather tedious. And surgery, the act of doing something practical with your hands, using your hands to physically make someone better was more attractive to me. And obstetrics and gynaecology felt to me a bit like a mixture. For some conditions, we use medical treatment prior to surgery, either to try those more conservative measures first, and then use surgery if those haven't worked successfully. Or we might use medical treatment in preparation to make the surgery easier and more straightforward. When you start to specialise, you start to learn basic surgical skills that I've described in the episode Apprentice. And whilst you're starting training, you're also studying. So part one of the membership of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists the postgraduate exams that we have to take to specialise and become consultants in our field. Part one is basic anatomy, basic physiology. So we studied the basic anatomy of the pelvis and the physiology of the menstrual cycle. And suddenly those basic sciences start to become relevant start to be applicable to the job that you're doing every day. 
So understanding where the ureter, the tube between the kidneys and the bladder goes in relation to the uterine artery, the main blood vessel supplying the womb, instead of being a random fact, it starts to become a very relevant fact when you're going to cut that uterine artery to perform a hysterectomy, that is removal of the womb, because you do not want to cut the ureter and cause a complication. So knowing where the artery is in relation to that tube suddenly is extremely important. Another example might be the position and function of the pudendal nerve. This is a nerve that supplies the pelvic floor and the perineum. And this nerve we can numb with some local anaesthetic. If we know where the pudendal nerve runs, we can apply local anaesthetic with a specialist needle called a pudendal needle to perform a pudendal block to give good pain relief to a woman when we're performing an assisted vaginal birth or instrumental birth if she doesn't already have an epidural. So these anatomical facts start to become really relevant and really important and your detailed understanding of them becomes vital. The other thing you discover is that no two operations are the same. You may have the basic anatomical landmarks and features, but these are sometimes distorted by pathology or scar tissue or different size of patient or in pregnancy, different duration of pregnancy, gestation. So no two operations are the same. One of the most satisfying first operating procedures I learnt was perineal suturing. The perineum is the tissue between the entrance to the vagina and the entrance to the anus. And this tissue is three-dimensional. So you have to build up three different layers of tissue robustly. So first of all, you stitch the vaginal wall. Then you stitch the muscle between the vaginal wall and the outside skin. And then you stitch the skin on the outside. It can be very satisfying taking either a cut, an episiotomy that's been made to assist birth of the baby, or taking a tear, which may look quite chaotic, look quite traumatic. And then with your needle and thread, restoring the anatomy correcting the tissues so that they can heal up really well and that woman can have a good result and not have long-term consequences of that cut or injury. The other thing that's immensely satisfying about this is that by bringing the tissues back together, so stitching, you can minimise blood loss for the woman. So a common cause of bleeding immediately after having a baby is called trauma. So that's bleeding from a tear or a cut. And the quicker you stitch that and the more effectively you stitch that, the less blood the woman will lose. So picking up your suture and sitting down, giving the woman pain relief, whether that's local anaesthetic, gas and air, or in some cases, 
um, a regional block like a spinal anaesthetic and stitching things back together quickly and efficiently can prevent blood loss. And sometimes when you're doing that stitching, it's slightly weird, like you've become invisible. Of course you're not. The woman usually has her legs up in stirrups, lithotomy position, and you've got a light aimed at her perineum while you are trying unobtrusively to get on with the stitching. And over the years, some of these moments have changed because it used to be that there was that moment where a couple would enjoy that new baby and they would wait for the baby to be weighed and measured and checked and perhaps leaving the labour ward before they might go out and phone the waiting family and friends and and let them know the good news. Now with social media it's a bit different. Often people are taking photographs of their baby almost immediately and posting them to friends and family and that is lovely. It is so nice to be able to share their new baby straight away with their family but part of me misses that calm. It's become a bit intrusive, the fact that you can immediately show everyone, your baby, what they look like, what their name is, what they weigh. And sometimes women are even on the phone to family and friends while I'm doing the stitching. And I just find that a little bit odd. Perhaps take a moment to to pause be present, reflect on what's just happened, reflect on the birth of that baby. And yes, of course, there's a time to share that with family and friends. But actually, spend that time with your baby and your partner, your birth partner, and don't let those moments pass so quickly with other distractions. So stitching after a vaginal birth will often take place in the birthing room, in the delivery room, unless it's a more severe tear, in which case we might go to the operating theatre. And I very much like this aspect of my job, the practical hands-on operating. I always find it slightly strange that I really didn't like sewing at school but that in a way this is what I spend quite a lot of time doing. Most of the time we work with instruments. So the needle is curved and the suture thread comes off the needle and we hold the needle with a needle holder and then we have forceps that look like a pair of tweezers to pull the suture through the tissue. So it's a little bit like trying to sew using chopsticks. It's a different sort of technique from sewing with your fingers. And the only needle we usually hold by hand is the skin stitch. And the skin stitch does look literally like a needle and thread from school. It's a straight needle. And It's really important 
to do a good skin stitch because potentially this is the only bit of your surgery, the only bit of your work that the woman will ever see. The scar you leave her on her abdomen if you're doing a cesarean. Most of the time we use a dissolvable stitch and it's called subcuticular. So it's kind of buried under the edge of the skin. And the idea of it is to bring the skin edges together. And skin heals up very quickly. So usually in a few days, maybe five days or so, the skin will have healed over and the stitch will hold it a bit longer. Uh, Dissolvable stitches usually last a couple of weeks, but usually by about day five, the skin will have healed. When you're operating, different tissues have a different feeling. Sometimes we're operating using sharp instruments. So we might use the knife, the scalpel, or we might use scissors. Sometimes I think when I'm operating, it must sound to the woman a bit like she's in the hairdresser because you can hear that snip snip of the scissors. And some tissues, you can do what's called blunt dissection, which is where you use your fingers to separate the layers, the planes between the tissue. And an example of that might be the peritoneum. So that's like a cling film like layer that covers the insides of your tummy. And you can just pop your finger through that. My gynecology colleagues do laparoscopies, that is keyhole surgery. And I don't do this anymore because I'm now an obstetric only consultant. But a laparoscopy is a bit like opening a box of secrets. So there are things that you will see with a laparoscope when you put a camera inside someone's abdomen that you can't detect on ultrasound scan and you can't find out by doing a CT scan or taking a history. It's only by actually eyeballing through a fibre optic camera that you can see things like endometriosis. To do a laparoscopy, you perform a small incision by the belly button and you start by putting a needle into the abdomen. And this is always a little bit of a tense moment because you're hoping you don't hit or touch the internal organs. There's a definite knack. And then once that needle is in, it's quite long, it's about six inches, but long, but quite thin. Then you inflate the belly with gas before putting in a bigger, what's called a port to hold the instruments so that you can have a look and move the pelvic organs around. So that's the womb, the tubes and ovaries to look for ovarian cysts, scar tissue or endometriosis. For me, I was never destined to be a laparoscopic surgeon. I had terrible hand-eye coordination and I could never get the gist of the fact that to do laparoscopic surgery, you have to move your arms in the opposite direction to the way you wish to move the instruments. So it's very counterintuitive and I always really struggled with that. And I'm in awe of my colleagues who can manage to do that. When we were training we used to enjoy doing laparoscopies, not least because for a laparoscopic sterilisation, we got an additional fee. It was a bit like a perk. For some random reason that I don't really understand, inserting a contraceptive coil 
or performing a sterilisation because they were counted as family planning carried an additional fee and we would add them up each month and claim back a fairly modest fee but it it just topped up our salary. So we were gaining experience of moving instruments, clipping tubes which was really good practice for laparoscopic operating but also as well as the satisfaction of doing the surgery we got a little bonus. Scrubbing up for theatre is a whole process in itself. So you have to let the water run from your hands to your elbows so that you're washing the dirt off downwards away from your hands which are going to be clean. You have to lather your hands in a specific way. We have nail brushes to scrub our nails and you progressively wash less and less of your arm till you're just washing your hands and letting all the water drip away. So you're often ending up starting your surgery with water having trickled down into your armpit because you're holding up your hands, trying not to touch the taps or the sink because that way you de-sterilise yourself. Um, And sometimes the water's quite cold, sometimes it's hot, but by the end of scrubbing, usually you're a bit wet. It's just inevitable. Then you've got to gown. So you pick up a gown and you shake it out in a particular way so that you're holding the neckline. And then you put your arms in and let the gown drop down your front. And someone has to do it up for you at the back because you can't touch your back. Um, you would be unsterile. We then have to put on gloves and the way we put on gloves, our hands are still within the gown, within the cuff of the gown and you take a glove and you put your thumb in and flip it over and then pull it down onto your hand by pulling the gown down. So there's a very prescribed way on how to wash, how to gown and how to glove. And once you are gowned and gloved, you are completely reliant on the rest of the team. You can't touch anything. You're sterile. And so you are essentially helpless. You need the rest of the team around you to prepare the patient, prepare the woman, prepare any equipment and hand you things. So no surgeon can operate alone. However great they are, they need a whole team around them. They need a scrub nurse or assistant. They need a surgical assistant. There needs to be an anaesthetist and an ODP who assists the anaesthetist. You need a runner to run and get pieces of equipment. You need a whole team. So however great a surgeon you are, a surgeon cannot perform an operation on their own you need a whole theatre team. And recently I had someone come to theatre and watch me do a caesarean. They were an illustrator and they were doing some work to think about the patient information that we give women coming in to have a caesarean. And she described how we did the caesarean as like a ballet, like a dance, choreographed, 
because every member of the team knew exactly what their role was and what they were doing and how to move around the theatre. And we did so effortlessly, calmly, and everything was coordinated. And I thought that was a really lovely analogy, um, a really beautiful idea of how one might operate. And that's very true. So it's really important that everyone in theatre understands each other's roles and what the impact of their role has on the other roles. And we've done a series of job swaps uh, in my department. One of my colleagues spent some time with the runners, the midwifery assistants who clean and sort out the bins in theatre and bring the pieces of equipment we need. And it was really eye-opening for her to see exactly what they did while we might be having a cup of coffee and sitting with our feet up waiting for the next case. They were running around, changing the clinical waste, packing away the surgical equipment set to go back to be sterilised and making sure that everything was in place, all the equipment was ready for the next case and cleaning up the theatre. So they play a really vital role. When I trained, I did a series of sessions with an anaesthetist and I found it very interesting how little of the surgical procedure I could see from the other side of the drape. So I started to understand that they couldn't easily see blood loss and that it was very important for me as a surgeon to communicate clearly what blood loss I was experiencing when I'm operating. And also... I hadn't understood the effect on a woman's pulse and blood pressure of some of the drugs that I might ask the anaesthetist to give. I might ask for drugs that help the womb contract and this may have the side effect of making the woman sick. It may make her blood pressure rise. It may make her blood pressure fall. And understanding what impact that has is really important. So now I'm going to come to today's zesty bit. So today's zesty bit is every person in the theatre has a role to play. No single person can operate independently. So it's really important to understand their roles. And if you work in theatre, either a maternity theatre or a general theatre, do you really know and understand what your colleagues are doing? Have you followed their journey and what is happening when you are out of the theatre and think your job is done? Could you shadow them? Could you sit and have a coffee with them? Do they understand what you're doing and what the pressures are for you? It's also important to imagine what it's like for the woman. So we've done some following of a woman's journey by getting a medical student to follow a woman step by step as she came in right from when she arrived at our reception to when she'd had uh, her baby and moved off to the postnatal ward. We've put butterflies and blossom on the ceiling because that is what the woman sees when she's lying on the operating table. And I know other units like St George's, the New Beginnings Project and Birth Outside the Box in Derby have done quite a lot of simulation on what it's like to have a trip to maternity theatre and how they might improve women's experience of that. So next time you're in theatre, have a think, 
understand what all the different roles are. And I know that if I have a theatre team with one person missing, whoever that person is, however unimportant or menial their role might seem, they're actually vital. Each person within the theatre team is as important as the others. No theatre team can operate without every component. And as I said, no surgeon can operate without a theatre team. So today's zesty bit is teamwork makes the dream work. Work within your team, try and understand each other's roles and understand what it's like being a woman in the centre of that. So I do hope you've enjoyed listening to the OBS pod. If you have, do like, subscribe or leave a review and join me again to explore more about the life of an NHS obstetrician. I'm finding it really exciting to have people listening and give me feedback about what they've found interesting. So please do recommend the OBS pod to other friends, colleagues or people who you think might find it interesting. I'd love it if you'd share with me what you've enjoyed about listening and if you've done anything differently as a result. I can be found on Twitter at FWMaternity and at TheObsPod. And please do check the MatExp hashtag, hashtag M-A-T-E-X-P and the website matexp.org. UK for more information and ideas on how to improve women's experience of maternity care. Finally, I'd like to reassure you that I take confidentiality very seriously and although I'm talking about experiences from my working life, I'm taking great pains to make sure that I anonymise the stories and talk in more general terms so that I keep confidentiality of my women I currently care for and have cared for in the past very safe. Many thanks for listening.